The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Ellen Everett Hopman, a master herbalist and lay homeopath, holds a master's in education in mental health counseling. She's the Archdruid of Tribe of the Oak and a founding member of the Order of the White Oak. Her newest book, The Sacred Herbs of Yule and Christmas, Remedies, Recipes, Magic, and Brews for the Winter Season, is featured in the current issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Ellen Hopman, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I have to make one little correction. I recently stepped down as Archdruid of Tribe of the Oak, and I very happily handed it over to another person. <laughs> so, okay. So I'm the so. Archdruid Emerita of oh, Tribe of the Oak. Very good. So thank you for correcting that. So <laughs> what? What that gives you more time to do what? Oh boy, everything. Have a life. <laughs> you know, I spend more time with friends. I spend more time in nature. I'm at, yeah, I mean, I've noticed it's a real, it's different. I, I'm focusing more on live people and less on being on the internet, <laughs> which is really oh, good. That's you know? always a good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I got your book and I'm going through it. And as the subtitle says, it's a kind of, and, and correct me if I'm mischaracterizing it, but it's a kind of cookbook for, like it says, remedies, recipes, magic, and brews. And as such, it doesn't tell us a lot, or maybe if anything, about you. So before we get into the book, I think people would be interested in learning a little bit about paganism, about Druidic philosophy. But on a personal level, how you were drawn to this? What what what's your religious story? How you know, did you grow up in a Druid household? Or if not, how did you move from where you grew up into paganism and into Druidism in particular? Oh boy. Well th that could be a one hour show <laughs> right there. But no, no, I I came from a mixed household, but my mother was mostly Unitarian. My father was actually he was well, they were both atheists by the time I was born, but my father's parents were Orthodox Jews. They were Jewish. So but he was he anyway, so there was very little religious instruction in the household. But oddly enough, my parents thought that I and my brother should go to all kinds of different religious services. We were in an Episcopalian choir for a while and when I was really little, we had, I lived in Europe, and so we, we always had a governess or a maid uh, who would take us to Catholic churches. 
And I, so I went to the Catholic services when they were in Latin, which I actually really liked because it was very mystical. And the priest had his back turned to you. And we had to fast before we, we went that, you know, in the morning and we couldn't eat anything until afterwards. And I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. And the smell of frankincense, you know, and that was great. I went to Quaker schools at one point. I went to a school in, Spain, San Bonifacio in Bilbao, Spain, which was Catholic. No, it was Protestant and German in the morning and Catholic and Spanish in the afternoon. So the, <laughs> so I came home and my parents would say things like, God is a myth that was invented by people to explain their fears. So, so I had this really, when I look back on it, I mean, but you know, as a kid, I just thought this was all perfectly normal, except that I always had a very strong mystical bent. That that was me. My brother, not so much, but I had an altar in my bedroom. I had a, a picture of the Virgin Mary, and I just had to have an altar in my bedroom, you know. And and then at age 13, um, I read the, the book Zen Flesh, Zen Bones by Paul Reps. Um, and taught myself to meditate, Zen meditation at age 13. I had no teacher, didn't know there was such a thing as a teacher. There was nobody around. So I taught myself. And then I went to college and I became a transcendental meditation initiate. I, I did Kundalini yoga, went to the ashram in Los Angeles and various places. Anyway, I had a boyfriend who had met a Sufi master so I eventually went to Philadelphia and lived in an ashram and was a Sufi for eight years. And then, but it was a very traditional Islamic group, which meant that the whole earth was, the whole world was forbidden. It was all haram. And I just felt like I was starving in the wilderness. That's how I put it. I mean, I just, I, I felt like I was hungry for something, and I left there eventually, and then spent five years studying with, exclusively with Native American elders. And one of them said to me, you know, it's really great that you're honoring our ancestors, but you need to honor your own. And I had no clue what that meant. And then I started looking into it, figured out that my mother had Celtic ancestry, and then I heard Irish music, Celtic music on the radio for the first time, which just blew me away. And I became a Kaylee dancer and I was just totally into it. And then I had an herbal practice in Philadelphia at the time. And one of my clients came and mentioned that she had met a Druid. And I heard that word Druid and it just resonated, you know, and I just, and it just, it, it, the way I describe it is it was like a harp string plunked or something in my, in my mind. I heard this sound and I just spent the next couple of years, this was before the internet, this was um, in the early 80s, looking for druids and I eventually found some and I've been a druid ever since, 40 years or more. Wow. <laughs> that that's an amazing story only slightly <laughs> different from my own <laughs> well there's I mean, a lot more I, I left out a lot of it I, like i said you could take an entire hour show <laughs> just to but, you know i mean I, I i didn't look up your age 
And, yeah. you know, so how, how old are you? 71. Okay. So, so you and I are the same age, basically. I'm a little older, but okay. we're talking about the same generation. Yeah. And we have, I mean, you, you had traveled you know, all over the, you know, the world, basically. And I, I, I was stuck in Massachusetts, but you were drawn to all these different traditions, as was I. I was very interested in, in Buddhism. I, you started at 13, I started at 16 with Zen practice. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if, you know, your story, my story is, uh, they're not unique. There was something in the zeitgeist of our generation that people were just, and I also came from both my parents who are Orthodox Jews, modern Orthodox Jews. You know, we 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 came out of this world and we were drawn to all these other things and where somebody i don't know if anybody younger would listen to this and say that makes you know pick one but i think at the time my parents generation they were like what is wrong with these people you know well, why it yeah, was vietnam i think it was vietnam that's what it was all about because we were so horrified and actually what what's happening right now in the world it feels to me a lot like Vietnam because during Vietnam, you know, at dinner time, the TV would come on and my mother was always upset because why are you watching the war in, during dinner? You know, my father wanted to have the news on. And, and then after that, after Vietnam, the government stopped doing that. They sanitized the wars, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, they, they didn't show the pictures of, of, you know, bodies burning and villages burning. And they just, you know, they didn't even show pictures of coffins coming in to, to dealt from the war. Um, it was, but it's now we're seeing it again. We're seeing the bombing. And I think it's, a, it, I, I feel like it's going to be the same thing because when you're young and the world is on fire and you should say, boy, this civilization that I was born into is crazy. And I need to find something completely different. I mean, that's that I think that was a big part of it. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with the crazy part. I mean, with I don't want to I don't want to get sidetracked into Israel stuff and Gaza. No, no, but all, it's all just that. But but I am interested in um if you think that paganism and Druidism, I mean, you, ne you never hear of Druids going to war, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's, there's, it, my sense is, and again, there's, this is really just off the cuff, and, and there's so much more you could say about this, so uh, this is just superficial in a sense, but there is something intrinsically violent about Judaism, Christianity, and Islam for mm -hmm. all of our vaunted love your neighbor as yourself, and, you know, what is hateful to you, don't do to somebody else, is the way Rabbi Hillel put it. For all of our ethics, our ethics are, are, are easily put aside when our respective gods say, oh, go kill these people. Mm -hmm. And in paganism, oh, even before you say that, go kill these people, but also you can destroy nature. Whereas paganism and druidism, I don't think you have that. Am I, is that fair? 
Well, in ancient times, we we certainly killed people. I mean, the Roman Empire was pagan, right? <laughs> so, I mean, but but I I feel like because we're an elder religion, we've learned something. Hopefully, that you know, war only works in the very short term. It doesn't work in the long term. It it ruins your society. It ruins people's lives. It you know, I mean, I think we figured that out, but that, two thousand years ago, we were certainly violent. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's true, and and again, we could we could talk about this for the whole podcast, and I right, won't. I mean, but but pagan paganism always had room for multiple gods. Exactly. It, it, yes, it wasn't that the gods sent you to war; it was right. that empires went to war. Exactly. Uh, kings, kings, emperors—they're the yeah, ones. Yeah, people, got us people did trouble. this, whereas. Yeah. You know, there's 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 something different about the Abrahamic traditions, mm-hmm. where there's only there's only room for one God, and even though in interfaith settings they always say, "Oh, we all worship the same God," we don't. No, <laughs> no, we don't. We each have our different tribal gods, and they battle each other out. And the only way you can tell which God is the real God is to see which group is the last group standing. So it, there is this craziness to it. And I'm wondering if you see among people, like you said, this, so there's this madness going on, it's generational maybe. Do you see people flocking? And maybe that's too big a word, but do you see people, do you see, do you see paganism growing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you just look at book sales, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, and well, it, it depends on what part of the country you're in. It's still dangerous, like in the South. Louisiana is dangerous. There's, there's places where, you know, having a public pagan festival is still dangerous. That really crazy people show up and scream at you and try to drive you away, you know. But yeah. we're, we're very fortunate we live in Massachusetts. And that's, I mean, that's a big subject too. And I did write a book called The Real Witches of New England, where I talk about what happened here. But I think Massachusetts tries very hard to be liberal because of what happened at Salem. I think we've been ashamed ever since because, you know, after they killed all the people at Salem who weren't even witches, they were just Christians, they and they were all murdered in the, in the name of witchcraft. And then as soon as it was over, everybody was ashamed of themselves and you know, restitution was paid to the families. And I think we're still dealing with that. You know, we're yeah. bending over backwards to be tolerant because of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm from Massachusetts also. I always, up until just a few weeks ago, I always thought Massachusetts was, you know, the promised land for me. <laughs> I always wanted to go back because I'm in the South. And I always thought about going back if it wasn't so expensive. <laughs> and, but now, after October 7th and all the anti-Semitism that's coming out of the elite universities in, in Harvard and, and including Harvard and other places in Massachusetts, I'm like, oh, I don't know. They're, they're not so tolerant when it comes to Jews. But anyway, putting all that aside, uh, let's pick up on your ancestors for a second and go back to the book or, or pick up on the book. So I'm, I'm reading through the book and I didn't realize that you had, you know, on your father's side, you had the same kind of Judaism that that I came from. So, in the book, you have this this I don't, I don't know, maybe it's a throwaway line. I'm not even sure, but you're talking about werewolves, 
And you say that, and I'm quoting here, werewolves roamed on Christmas Eve to rage with wondrous ferocity against humans. They would try to break down doors and, if successful, devour any person or animal they could find. So, and, and you mention places where I'm from, my, my family, my ancestors are from, and I don't know about your grandfather or grandparents on your father's side, but mine come from Lithuania. And that's one of the places where the werewolves are. And so I, I did some digging to see how we handled werewolves in the winter. And we would throw ashes at them. That's how you defended yourself. And you've got a lot of ways of defending yourself from these frightful figures, as you call them, but nothing against werewolves. So just for those who are listening and going, werewolves, I better watch out. What Did I miss it in the book? Is there something uh, uh, that you can do for werewolves? Well, if it's if it's not there, that means I didn't find it. Well, I thought maybe um, I missed it, but okay. No, so you, but, you don't I mean, have it's not on the tip of your tongue about where. No, but but in okay. general, one something that that people need to know about Yuletide and Christmas. I mean, one of the big aspects of Christmas is all the lights. You know, lights on houses, li lights on trees, candle. Um, you know, it light and bonfires, and this goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And 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 the Yule log, same thing, having a fire going continuously without any interruption for twelve days and nights. You know, why do we do all this? Because at this time of year, we're in the darkest time of year. It's when you have the longest nights and the shortest days, and. This is the time when the underground spirits, things that normally live in the dark, or they might live in the deep, dark woods, or they, they might live underground, or they might be flying through the night sky. But all these scary things that normally only live in the dark feel comfortable coming to Earth. And so you have to do something to repel them. And that's why you have all these lights. And, you know, yeah. in, in, in Judaism, there's the, the story of the, you know, the Hanukkah lights. And it, I've thought about that a lot. You know, it starts in the dark of the moon at the darkest time of year in December, you know, and you light one candle. And it, as you light each candle, the, you get closer and closer to the return of the light. And I know that there's this story grafted on about the Maccabees and the magical oil that didn't go out and all that. But I have a very strong suspicion that that was grafted on later because this idea of keeping the light going is much older than that. It goes back, you know, probably to the Paleolithic, you know. And so that's just something to be aware of when, you, when you're putting lights on your Christmas tree. <laughs> just <laughs> be aware that you're doing something that your distant, distant ancestors did. You know. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety grounding and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, all religions can trace their roots back to those uh, th those ancient periods, and the fears that go with them. How do you? Well, two questions really. I mean, how literally do you personally take the the dark side, the frightful figures? Well, I we have our solstice rituals. Our pagan solstice rituals are also very much focused on the light. That's what they're all about. They're about bringing back the light. So, I mean, we respect the dark. We honor the dark. We're not afraid of the dark. We go into the dark. We, we say the dark has a spirit to it. It has wings. You know, it's, it's alive. You know, that most of the universe is dark. There's more dark than there is light at, it, in the sky, right? In all the universes, it's mostly dark. And we all come out of that. We come out of that darkness. We get born from that. And babies in the womb are in the dark. A seed that goes in the soil is in the dark. You know, everything starts in the dark. So we honor it. We're not afraid of it. We honor it. So at winter solstice, we sit in the dark. We turn out all the lights, you know, close the curtains and douse any lights. And, and we sit there in the dark and we honor it. And then slowly we bring back the light. We light one candle. And then that one candle lights another candle. You know, somebody else is holding, you know, everybody's holding a candle, right? So each person slowly hands the light to the next person until slowly the room is filled with these lit candles, the whole room. And that's bringing back the light. And it reminds us that the light is returning and that there's nothing to fear. That's how we do it. Right. So as I'm listening to you say that, what I hear is a very sophisticated, I mean, if I say Jungian, I, I don't mean to, you know, I mean it in the most positive sense, you know, a very deep understanding of the shadow side of things, of, of honoring the dark, in the dark, the mysterious. I think in the Tao Te Ching, it's the feminine is the dark. Uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 the Tao is the... Is, the feminine. So, so there's this appreciation of the dark, of the, the, you know, the yin and the yang, of the dark and the light. Whereas in, and I may be overstating this, but it seems to me in modern religion, the dark is repressed and we just, it's just about light. Mm -hmm. And yeah. You know, in, in the Hanukkah ritual, like you said, you start with one candle, and then the next night is two, and the next night you work your way to eight. Now, there was a debate thousands of years ago, maybe you should start with eight and work your way down to one. But the way they, they settled it was, no, you start with one and you work your way up to eight, which is what you're talking about. You start with the dark and you work your way into the night, into right. the light. There, there is the fear of the dark that is, in a sense, and I'm, just, I'm, gonna, I'm stay, stating it, but it's really a question. I get a sense that there's a fear of the dark that is more, that is denied in contemporary religion, that is more, more, that is more deeply understood in paganism. The dark is is more honored and dealt with and explored and embraced in paganism than it is in contemporary religions where it's all about the light. Is that fair? 
Yes, and we try to honor nature, and nature is both male and female, and we don't have this idea that there's some male god with a beard, you know, sitting somewhere passing judgment on people. I mean, that's just so out of balance. You know, we would never say there's just one god or just one one divine sex, you know, that the, the male deity is like the all-important one. We would never do that because when we look at nature, we see male, we see female, you know, so we have gods, we have goddesses, and we, we never presume to say there's just one because we recognize it's like a gem. It's like different facets of one gem. It's all divine for us, you know, the, the fire, the earth, the water, the air, the stones, the trees, the plants, the animals, they're all sacred, they're all divine. We see the spark of the divine within all of those. And we, you know, it's, we, it's, it's everywhere. We don't, I mean, when I was young, I was always looking for it because I, I went to, you know, services where they said it was, you had to act a certain way and it was unattainable and it was really hard to, to get to and all that. But that's not how a pagan sees it. I can step outside the front door and I, I see the trees and I see the grass and I, already I'm in church, you know. Right, right, exactly, e exactly. That, I mean, telling people that the sacred place is in a box and then closing the box off and then, I mean, you know, modern times, breathing processed air, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's totally cut off from nature and saying, oh, this is the holy space. It's, it's ridiculous. Whereas, you know, in the, in the Bible, just to take one example, when Moses encounters the divine at the burning bush, the first thing that, that he's told to do is to take off your shoes, come into physical naked foot contact with the earth. Mm -hmm. Because there should be nothing between you and the the ground of being, so yeah, we we somehow people have just screwed all of this up, and and it maybe comes from a sense of well, I don't know if it's a fear of nature or a hatred of nature, a hatred of the material world, matter, mother. I mean, you can make a whole big thing about you know a sort of a misogynist theology that's not just misogynist in the sense of being anti women as in the sense of human women, but anti everything feminine uh, that has that's infected so much of the Abrahamic traditions anyway. In Hinduism, you don't have the same kind of thing, though misogyny certainly exists in, in Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, anything that men run You've got a misogynist, patriarchal insanity going on. But even in your book, you talk about, I thought this was interesting, the first footing, I've never heard of this, the, the, to, to be concerned about who's the first person to cross the threshold of your house. I guess it's after midnight on Christmas. And the well, no, worst New Year's. New Year's. Oh, New Year's. New Year's. Okay, thank you. And uh, the, <laughs> the worst thing is if it's a woman. Right. I, I had... I never heard of the whole thing, but you're right. In some areas, having a woman as the first visitor spells serious trouble for the house and mm -hmm. could bring birth defects and even death to the family. Right. Um, so so even, even in these less, or I don't know, more pagan settings, women still get short shrift. 
Well, th- those are not pagan settings. Remember, I mean, this is Scotland, which was heavily Presbyterian. This is Greece. You know, all these places have been thoroughly converted. Mm. You know, I don't think pagans would, would think that a woman coming through the door was bad luck. But but the worst possible thing is a red-headed woman, okay? So I thought about that a lot, too. And I thought the only thing that could be is from Vikings. Because if you're in Scotland and you see people with red hair coming through the door, you're in trouble, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, but both of my grandsons have red hair. Oh, dear. So. I'll watch out. I'll make sure they don't show up on New Year's Day. That, that they don't need that in the, in the house. So we're we're getting close to the. We're going to run out of time soon, and I want to take a look at something practical. Uh, there, there was. Let me say this first, though. There was so much interesting stuff, but much of the book is like a, a cookbook. I mean, it says a recipe book. So there's a lot of practical things in here that people can can actually do. So in the time we've got left. Can you suggest two or three herbs that people could work with um, this winter to to sort of enhance moving through the dark time? Okay, well, we should mention the title of the book, which is The Sacred Herbs of Yule and Christmas. And I have a, a chapter in there about winter remedies. So there's medicinal remedies. But then um, I give, as you said, a lot of recipes. I have cooking recipes, and I also have libations, you know, brews. And you can, they're all traditional Christmas-oriented recipes from many different cultures, Venezuela, Poland, Russia, England, I mean, Italy, you name it, it's all in there. So if you have French ancestry, you can look up what a traditional French Christmas dinner would be, what would what would be included. So you can make the dishes or make the drinks just as recipes, but I also give the magical properties of everything. So some of you may have seen the Harry Potter movies or read the the books, and you know about potions, right? So if you know the magical properties of everything that goes into a drink, say, then it becomes a potion. And... (laughs) And you can design your potions, like you could have all herbs for peace or herbs for health or herbs uh, for abundance or herbs to, to give you a spark, to get you moving, you know. You can pick and choose, but it's really nice to know what the properties of these things are. And then I give suggestions also for chants. So while you're cooking and you're stirring your pot, you know, sunwise, that's clockwise always, you can be chanting. And then I say the best thing is if you were in, if you create your own chants. You know, I do give suggestions, but I say the best thing is to create your own. And what I was kind of visualizing was groups of people, families, friends, people gathering together for a solstice ritual, you know, working together to make something, to make a cake, to make a drink, learning the magical properties of the ingredients, stirring it sunwise, chanting, creating an experience. You know, there's too much emphasis on consumerism at this time of year, and everybody thinks they have to buy electronics and fancy gadgets and spend lots of money that they don't have. But, you you know, one thing that we've all learned from COVID is how incredibly important and valuable experiences are. So 
I actually have, there's three books now. There's The Sacred Herbs of Samhain, which is about Halloween, which again gives you recipes and herbs for, for things, you know, rituals you can create and dishes that you can cook and all that. Then there's The Sacred Herbs of Spring, same idea, loads of recipes. And then Sacred Herbs of Yule and Christmas, which is the third book kind of in the series now. But it's all okay. the same idea. It's, it's people coming together, creating a wonderful experience with magical and, and healing properties, spiritual properties, you know, all coming together. And So I, I love that idea, I, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you one more question because it's not the answer I wanted. Okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna not ask for specifics, but see if this idea is doable. And that'll that's how we're gonna have to bring the show because we are really over time. So what I was thinking is people are gonna go to visit other people and they're gonna bring gifts and like you said, electronics or whatever they but if you're going to visit somebody who you know needs I don't know, like you said, a spark or who's going through a difficult time. Mm -hmm. it, it seemed to me, because I got the whole book, I went through the whole thing, I could find or a listener could find a recipe, a brew, a cake recipe, something. You could make this in your house yeah. for a specific person right. with a specific need mm -hmm. and gift them that, right? Exactly. Exactly. You could do that. that that's what I'm thinking. Of course, it doesn't have yes. to be, you don't have to make the drink and say, drink it now. No. I mean, that's one of the things I, when I give out Christmas gifts, I very often give out herbal tinctures that I make myself, you know, or I, I, I make liqueurs out of herbs. I make herbal liqueurs. And for example, I, in the spring, I go out and I gather the new growth from pine and spruce and hemlock, and I make a hemlock liqueur. And hemlock is an herb of peace. You know, the conifers, the pines, they're all herbs of peace. And and so I, I bring that liqueur to, to the Christmas party. Or another one that I make in the summer, I go out and I gather elderberries and wild-crafted elderberries, completely organic. And I make a tincture with elderberries and echinacea root. And I give that to people at Christmas because... That builds uh, your immune system, and it also is fantastic for viruses. It, it's not really antibacterial, but it's incredible for viruses. So anybody who has COVID, I give them that, or if they have flu, you know, and everybody gets something in the winter, but elderberry. You know, I, I think that's a great idea. I'm going to yeah. have to leave it there. But, you know, if, if anyone's listening and you're interested, what can I get so-and-so for Hanukkah, for Christmas, for Kwanzaa, for Bodhi Day, which is December 8th, that's Buddha's Enlightenment Day, you know, check this book out and there might be a recipe that you can make and give them something. Our guest today, Ellen Everett Hopman, is the author of The Sacred Herbs of Yule and Christmas, Remedies, Recipes, Magic and Brews for the Winter Season. The book is featured in the East, uh, current issue of Spirituality Health magazine. You can learn more about her work at her website, ellenevertthopman.com. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me and happy Hanukkah and, and a joyful Yule to everybody. And to you. Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. From everyone at Spirituality Health magazine, we thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.